listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for episode 294. It's February 1st Friday Q&A, and I sound like crap. So, my apologies. You don't feel good, do you? No, I have fever. Uh, but you're being a trooper and a spreader. Got to get through it. Well, you're going to help me. <laughs> a spreader? Yeah. No, it's all allergies. It's all allergies. I, it's freaking cedar pollen, man. I do not like spring. It is not my favorite yeah, season. Yeah, not there bothering me too. Not as bad as they are you. Yeah. But you know what was cool? What? Was the API gala we went to. Oh, it was so much fun. It was cool seeing how packed it was. And So the API Houston chapter has not thrown a black tie affair in over, I think, 35 years. This is the first time we've did, and we sold it out. It was a roast. It was wonderful. It was just nice to see kind of old school elegance come back to the industry. Yeah, my dress was long. It's fun to dress up and go do stuff. It's like playing dress up. Yeah, and I was in a tux. You can't hardly get me in a suit. <laughs> that is true. But I own the tux, right? So just like you, I sort of like getting dressed up that level every now and then. Yeah. I just need to stop buying dresses. I have too many of them. I need to start renting them so I don't run out of room. Or we just build you a bigger closet. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Speaking of bigger and better, you want to read the review? Not really. Okay, I'll do it. This is from Robert Gandanese. Gandanese? who's a professional engineer. Hi, Mark. Been listening to your podcast for years and want to say thank you. I used to be a facilities engineer for Chevron and the Permian, did a shell boom, and recently left, moved to Denver, and joined a carbon capture startup as we ever the carbon boom. That's a key bunch of error there. Your show is still one of my favorites. Highly informative. Keep it up. Well, Robert, we will keep it up. And actually, Robert, I'd kind of love to know what you're doing with your carbon capture startup. You have my contact information, evidently. So reach back out to me. Give me a little information or maybe let's set up a call. Really interested in that carbon capture and storage world and would love to learn more, especially from somebody that's an engineer and actually came from the oil and gas side. So appreciate the review. If you want to be like Robert and have your review read on the air, it's pretty simple. Go to the notes, click on the link. No matter what technology you're using, you can leave us a review. And if you want to try to remember, it's lovethepodcast.com forward slash OGTW, which is easier. Everybody just to go to links and click on it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, well, let's get into the questions. And as always, we're starting off with Ludwig. He asks, is the EPA in Odessa? Is that in Ukraine where I had an apartment or the USA? It's the one in Texas. <laughs> yeah, although it is spelled the same, which is interesting. I looked it up. And then the next part of his question is what? What is more interesting on the Texas case? Every Texas government organization needs to check everything every federal agent organization says. So the diversity on the FBI, did they pay the rent? I know what he's talking about. I have no idea. I do. Remember we talked about how the Texas government said that if you want to do business in the state of Texas, you can't condemn the fossil fuel industry? Oh, yeah, that's right. Without penalization. Then the governor told every Texas state organization to do everything within its power to make sure that doesn't happen. That's what he's talking about. Now, I don't know why he brought the FBI in. But I tell you this much, FBI, if you want to do business in the state of Texas, you better be nice to the oil and gas industry. Except they're the federal government, so they can kind of... <laughs> They're the federal government and the rest of the states. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's done different here in Texas. Right. And no hate mail from the FBI. You never know. I'm that like, might yeah. be awkward. <laughs> might be awkward. You get sued. They're just like, hey, we're going to raid your house now for no reason. All right, so on to the next. 
That's from Jacob Holt. Hey, Mark, I've been listening for about a year now, and I love the podcast. You and Paige do an excellent job breaking down all the news and explain things in a way everyone can understand. I'm considering a change back to the offshore drilling sector after a brief foray in midstream. I know you're bullish on the offshore market, but I wanted to get your thoughts on the change. Jacob, do it as fast as you possibly can. The offshore industry is booming right now. Every single person I talk to says they can't hire enough people. If you have experience and you want to make some money, make that hop. And then the cool thing with your midstream background, you know, there's a lot of pipelines in the world's oceans bringing those hydrocarbons from the offshore production platforms back to where they can be marketed. So it'd be cool for you to jump back on the offshore side. And with that midstream background, you might be able to do some cool stuff. The guy that left us a review, Robert, used to work for Chevron. And Chevron has that huge pipeline in the Gulf of Mexico. So anyway, neither here or there. But Jacob, yeah, make the jump now. All right. So the next one's from Miguel Zabala Bishop, founder at IGEF International Gas and Energy Forum. Hi, Paige and Mark. Next February is going to be my second anniversary following you guys. For me, my organization and my network, OGGN, is a goldmine of accurate info and deep analysis on the industry. Let's talk about the energy transition. We are involved in the energy transition process culture, even if we come from oil and gas. I organized tons of oil and gas and energy events in Latin America and founded a couple of magazines for the last 20 years, but I never felt this pressure. I believe in a decarbonization process, and I'm working on it. But I question why the process avoids natural gas as a bridge from a fossil economic culture to a greener one. What do you guys think? Regards, Miguel. Good question, Miguel. Which, by the way, I'd love to do more business in Central and South America in the oil patch there. So if there's some way we can have a conversation, maybe learn more about what you're doing there, I would love to do it. I follow a little bit of Portuguese. Muito bem. So, Let's go back about 10 years. Rex Tillerson, uh, this is before they bought XTO. Rex Tillerson, the CEO of ExxonMobil, saw that the future was going to be a natural gas future. He's the one that pushed Exxon really hard to develop not only its gas extraction, by they did that basically by buying XTO, but also looking to LNG and all the parts and pieces needed to turn it into liquid so you can move it around the world. Natural gas was the fuel of the future. What's happened, Miguel, and you're right, 100% natural gas, if you want to move from Crude oil to renewables, natural gas makes the most sense as the bridge fuel is what you called it. Now, let me tell you what's happened is the environmentalists have gotten involved. And even though natural gas in conventional power plants burns way cleaner than almost anything else out there, they've gotten involved and they've condemned natural gas. They've caused politicians and companies and countries to look at natural gas, not as a bridge fuel, not as something that releases less carbon dioxide when you burn it, but just another fossil fuel. So you have that negative stigma that's now attached to natural gas, which it really shouldn't be. I mean, Paige, we're not in the news show articles, and I'm not sure if this is going to make it, but I saw recently that in California, they're going to take a natural gas-fired power plant and they're going to strip the hydrogen from that natural gas and then convert that power plant to run on the hydrogen. So they're basically taking a fuel that has a lot of power, natural gas, stripping about 70% of its power to be to use away from it. And what's left, they're going to generate electricity. That's asinine. Yeah. Right? I mean, literally, they're making a plant I feel like more, we've talked about more that before. inefficient. We talked about it recently with somebody in person. Yeah. Okay. But Miguel, yeah, the natural gas really should be a bridge fuel. And then, like I said, the people that don't like our industry have demonized it, and it's just really gotten ridiculous. However, the world is in an energy shortage right now, and people are doing anything they can to get their hands on natural gas. So regardless of what the organizations do that don't like us, regardless of how they stigmatize natural gas, it's a huge need for it right now, and the need's not going to be met anytime soon. So the natural gas 
part of the oil and gas economy is booming and will continue to boom regardless of what anybody says or thinks. All right. Next one is from Christian Shoke. Correction, on episode 288, you mentioned Luis Inacio Lula da Silva is the new Petrobras president. He's actually the new Brazilian president. The nominated Petrobras new president is Jean Paul Prates, but it's still waiting board voting for approval slash rejection. Stop right there. Thank you, Kristen, for correcting me. How I got the president of – I feel horrible. How do I got the president of a country mixed up with the president of a company is beyond being fussed, and I should have not got that one wrong. But thank you for correcting me. And audience, every time I make a mistake, even if it's something as big as this, please let us know so we can – Is this the only person that reached out about it? The only person that wrote in about it, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Anyway, Kristen, thank you very much for the correction. I needed it. Yeah. Then the review. Love the show, especially the flow and its quality, sound information. Congrats. Again, my apologies from how my voice sounds. <laughs> Question is linked to renewables, but also with oil and gas and 2023 predictions. How do you see the market development for renewable gas biomethane in U.S. and globally for this year and upcoming ones. Thank you. I want to meet you someday when I'm in Houston. Absolutely want to meet you if you come to Houston. Just let us know ahead of time. You did skip one question where he said on Spotify, the Apple button is not working. It's probably just a glitch. Yeah, we have nothing to do with Spotify. Um, so whatever's going, hopefully, has been corrected for you by now, Christian. Yeah, that's a whole app issue, not a yeah, us issue. not us. So biomethane. So biomethane, if you don't know, methane can come from many sources, and one of the places it can come from at a rather fast pace is the decomposition of organic material. Most landfills, think about where your garbage goes, all that methane used to just be vented to the atmosphere. That was the nasty smell you would smell when you drive by, right, that hydrogen sulfide. What they've learned is if they take these landfills and they make them airtight and they capture that methane, they can then run that methane and use it to run generators and to produce electricity. That methane is a perfect example of biomethane. And so the market for it is growing. It is a renewable gas. Basically, if you think about the amount of garbage we produce, that's not going to ever stop. And being able to pull something valuable off of it like biomethane is really cool. A lot of the landfills started out using that methane to make electricity for their own use. Now they've figured out that with enough of it, they can sell that electricity and or that methane on the market. So it's another profit line for them. And so the market's growing in the U.S. especially. Globally, unfortunately, a lot of countries don't have the infrastructure to capture that methane that comes from things like landfills, much less move around in pipelines. But the world will get there. It's just too valuable a resource to vent to the air. And so as companies and people learn how to make money off of it, you'll see more and more of it captured, which is great for everybody. And you'll see that market continue to grow. That market is on a steady climb. It's not the peaks and valleys and it's good margins, good predictable margins. So that the market for renewable biomethane will continue to grow. All right. Next one is from Mario Romero. Good afternoon, Mark. Thanks for connecting. I just wanted to reach out and introduce myself as I won't be able to go to Nape next week to personally meet you guys. I've learned so much listening to your podcast this year, and I started as an analyst in the energy group lending to major EMP companies. On the last episode, you mentioned books that help you understand the industry better. Do you mind sharing which books you read? Also, when do you guys plan to launch the finance podcast? Really looking forward to it. All right, let me answer one quick question, and I want you to read the next one. So the Finance Podcast is in the works. Our original sponsor for that show has decided to reevaluate to the third quarter of this year. So at the latest, that's when it's launched. However, I got another company that you all heard of that I can't mention the name that's also talking to me about sponsoring that show. So it may happen earlier than that. So Mario, at the latest third quarter of this year and maybe sooner, just pay attention. You'll know when it comes out. So read the next one. 
from Lee Tice. Hey, Mark, recently began listening to your OGGM podcast, and I'm excited to start listening to the geopolitical podcast as well. I'm relatively new to the oil and gas industry and started working in acquisitions, but would like to expand my learning both with and depth. I have an MBA and may try to transition at some point into a finance trading side of things. I say all that to ask if you, okay, so this person wants to know books too. You have a few books you'd recommend reading to start down the rabbit hole of learning more about this industry. I'm also curious if you think being multilingual is helpful in the industry and if so, how and or where I might be able to capitalize on that. I know you're a busy guy, but I hope to hear from you at your convenience, Lee. Yeah. So first thing, Lee, yes, being multilingual is always helpful in business, oh, especially sure, oil and gas. Yeah, because it's global. Yeah. Now, English is the global language of the oil and gas industry, just like the American dollars is the currency of choice. But having another language in your pocket is great. A couple of things. You might want to reach out to the guy I just mentioned, Mario Romero, <laughs> because y'all have both finance and wanting to learn about the industry in common. Oh, you can be besties. Besties. Maybe start a book club. And if you start a book club, let me know. I'd be happy to donate some books. And the reason I had Paige read both of those questions back to back is they're both asking for books. At some point, our new CMO is going to make us do this. We're eventually on our website. We're going to have a page where you can see all these books and with a link for you to buy them. But here's what I recommend. And by the way, you can go into the show notes, everybody, and read these so you don't have to try to remember this. Fundamentals of Oil and Gas Industry for Beginners, Oil and Gas Production Handbook, An Introduction to Oil and Gas Production, Transport Refining in the Petrochemical Industry, Oil 101, The Global Oil and Gas Industry, Management, Strategy, and Finance, Fundamentals of Investing in Oil and Gas, Oil and Gas Production in Non-Technical Language, Project Finance for the International Petroleum Industry. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's eight books that I recommend. Like I said, they'll be in the show notes. And at some point, because we get this question so much, we'll have a page on our website so you can just go in and pick these things up. That would be helpful. Actually. And very convenient. I tell you what else is pretty cool is I met the head of publishing at NAEP. And I'm talking about having some of his authors on. I bet that that company would like to help us with this and maybe get even some of their books. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, on our website. So for the two guys that wrote in and asked about the books, those what I recommend. They'll be in the show notes. And then Lee and Mario, I think y'all should reach out to each other <laughs> and talk. And especially since uh, Lee has, speaks more than one language. Cool. All right. Next one's from Scott Dennis. Guys, love the show. Listen every week. Growing up in Los Angeles in the 70s, it was common to have days where we couldn't go out for recess due to air pollution. The situation is very different for kids now. What major developments improved air quality over the last 30 years? Paying it forward in a Yonkers NY. Scott. In Yonkers, New York. Thank you, Scott. Scott Dennis' name sounds so familiar. So I wonder if Scott and I trade tweets every now and then. Name sounds familiar. Anyway, so you're absolutely right, Scott. Our air and water pollution in the U.S. peaked in the late 70s. You may remember something called the Clean Air Act. Every year since then, our air and water gets cleaner and cleaner. Now, you would not know that. Listen to environmentalists. Our air is so clean now. Our vehicles burn so efficiently. But you're right. In the 70s, the smog was so bad that you couldn't go outside. We also remember we had a problem with acid rain. Once again, that was all caused by using coal to generate electricity mm-hmm. and not using clean coal burn technology. Since the Clean Air Act, in combination with the oil and gas industry working with auto manufacturers to modernize engines, car engines, air emissions, almost nothing. You've heard me say this before. I've been challenged on this, but I'm right. If you had a magic wand, and listen to me carefully, people, because people like to take this, what I say out of contents. If you had a magic wand and you could remove all passenger vehicles, so not all transportation, but all passenger vehicles from the U.S. with a stroke of that magic wand, you would drop our air emissions by 1%. Wow. Yeah. 
So my 2020 Infinity at 80 miles an hour puts out about 7% of the emissions that my 1967 Mustang put out cut off in the garage. Now that sounds insane, but remember, that Mustang had the gas system was vented to the air, so there was no closed fuel system. There was no catalytic converters. There was no computer making sure the air-to-fuel ratio was perfect. There was no lean-burn technology. And so our vehicles are ridiculously efficient. And that's why in the 70s, they weren't, and you had all this problem with smog by the oil and gas industry working with automobile manufacturers, driving efficiencies in internal combustion engines. They're super efficient now. They put almost out no emissions. And then by us stopping burning coal, naked coal, and using clean burn technology and things like natural gas and nuclear, we've stopped the acid rain. So our impact to the environment is less and less every year here in Europe since the late 70s, right? The problem is the rest of the world. We have to help them get to where we are now. Right. But great question, Scott. And I know I know your name from somewhere. I'm going to figure it out eventually. Good luck with that. <laughs> All right. George Rockwell, Project Finance Manager at Diamondback, writes in, being listener for years, by far one of the best podcasts out there. I don't mean just oil and gas podcasts. I mean all podcasts. Oh, that's sweet. I love when you guys have California news stories and you poke a little fun at them. But in all seriousness, if they continue down the political path that they are on now, what do you think California will look like in 20 years? And Mark, what's up with the balance point, bro? <laughs> Let me answer, George, that one. By the time you hear this, new episodes of the balance point should be released. My apologies. It was a great idea for a show. It was an experiment. The first show that we put behind Apple's paywall my whole idea was to have people come on that don't like the oil and gas industry or disagree with me about climate change and try to have civil discussions. And none of them would come on the show, George. <laughs> I had a handful of people, and hats off them come on the show. But all the major names, all the big organizations, they all love to talk behind a keyboard about how wrong I was. But the moment I invite them on the show, it's crickets, right? Silence. So we had to change the format. It's a reaction show now. So now I'll go find like ridiculousness on YouTube, and then I just make a talk through it why it's ridiculous, why it's not true. So that's right with the balance point. Now, let me talk about what I think is going to happen in California. Unfortunately, as bad as things are in California, the citizens there are not going to realize that it's their own fault because of their own political beliefs and who they've put in the office, who they vote for. So it's continued to get worse. California is on the edge of bankruptcy right now because they are a state in the United States, the federal government. We'll allow them to go through bankruptcy, but we'll have to step in to keep critical things running like fire, police, hospitals, whatever, that sort of stuff. Employment is getting harder and harder to find in California because companies are moving out because of their politics or anti-business. Or taxes. Well, everything, yeah. right? Yeah. The cost of living is prohibitively expensive unless you're homeless, in which case California – provides enough for you that you can stay homeless and have a kind of a decent lifestyle. So 20 years, what I think California is going to look like, there's going to be no businesses there. Everybody that seriously wants a really good job has probably moved out by then as well. The federal government will have to prop up California. And I'm waiting for the environmentalists in California who've ruined the oil and gas industry there to realize that their agriculture industry, about 70% of fertilizer comes from natural gas. Once they realize that, then you can see the environmentalists uh, fight against their own agriculture industry. In California, basically, who should have a thriving oil and gas industry, but because of the amount of hydrocarbons they have, basically that state's income is, is generated by transportation because of the ports, by agriculture, some movie making. And so they've lost all the gas industry revenue, but it's just, it's just gone. The studios, a lot of them have moved out because it's cheaper to shoot and produce movies in other parts of the states, other states than California. And they have their transportation industry and their agriculture industry. 
once the environmentalists start pushing against the agriculture industry because of the use of nitrogen and ammonia from natural gas and the fertilizers, they're going to kill their own agriculture industry if the drought doesn't kill it first. The lack of water because of bad political decisions. You have a choice between feeding 100,000 people or keeping a minnow alive. And in California, they choose to keep the minnow alive instead of feeding 100,000 people. Right. So it's just going to be bad. Now, let me tell you, that's 20 years from now. Once it gets so bad that literally nobody wants to live there and no businesses are there and they have no revenue, you can see a change. I think this is probably 50 to 75 years. You can see another wave of pioneers come in, start oil and gas operations so they have cheap, reliable fuel, start feeding the world again, bring back the transportation sector, and start bringing in people that politically understand how to run businesses. So I think in 20 years, it's going to be horrendous. It's going to look like a bad Mad Max movie without the cool cars. I think at 50 years, 50 to 100 years, you can see it come back and be a mecca of modern life. All right. Denise Henderson writes in, Director of Regulatory Compliance. What's up, Regs? SM Energy. Hey, guys. Longtime listener. First time writing in. The show provides tremendous value to myself and my team, and so I appreciate all the hard work and dedication you put into this. Give your production team a raise as the quality of your audio and production process is world class. I have two questions. First one, Paige, what is going on in Louisiana with Attorney General Jeff Landry and the social cost of greenhouse gases brawl? If you remember last year, Jeff Landry won the injunction against Biden executive order on social carbon costs in the Western District of Louisiana. And then like a month later, SCOTUS denied his push to block Biden from considering the cost of climate change, reversing the injunction. So I haven't heard anything about that since. So that's kind of where we're at. The second question is, Mark, how do you environmental groups get away with stopping oil and gas projects by claiming certain species will be threatened by operations? Paige, I like your opinion on this too as well. He's got an entire degree in wildlife management, so we're just going to leave that to Mark. You'll get this. So let me tell you what happens. You'll have a group that wants to stop some operation. And for this conversation, let's say it's a pipeline. And let's say that pipeline right away goes through an area where there's an endangered species. An endangered species is a legal term, basically saying that the species does not have enough members to stay viable by itself and it needs special protection or it will go extinct. And let me stop right there. Extinction sounds like a bad word, like, oh, we never want animals to go extinct. 98.97%. Listen to me, 98.97% of all animals that have ever lived on this earth are extinct before Ta-da. mankind existed. Extinction is part of the life cycle, right? As the world changes, as the geology changes, as the climate changes, certain animals have advantages, certain ones lose advantages, the ones that lose advantages go extinct. It's natural, okay? So what happens is the environmental groups in this scenario, I'm making up with this pipeline right away, let's say that there is a grouse, so there's a bird that is listed as endangered. But let's say this is happening in the state of Wyoming. They will make an appeal to the state of Wyoming saying that this pipeline project is threatening endangered species. Well, the endangered species fall under a federal law and a state law. The federal law requires that portion of whatever that government agency in Wyoming to do an investigation in X amount of time and then come back with a conclusion, either yes or no. Yes, it's threatening the grouse's ability to reproduce and live or no, it's not. However, there's a time limit combined with this and each state is different. And there's another time with the federal government. These environmental agencies, what they do, I mean, not environmental agencies, these people that don't like the oil and gas industry, these environmental groups, what they'll do is they'll intentionally file many, many claims at the same time so that the state agency literally does not have time to answer it, which automatically means it's put on hold until they can get to it. Clever. So they use the permitting 
and approval process intentionally as a way to stop oil and gas operations and projects. So there's one way they do that. Now, there's something else that's going on and that actually may touch my personal life. And if it does, I'll come back on the podcast and tell you how it went. But as a whole, when you have an endangered species somewhere, it's typically tied to habitat. You know, a certain minnow needs a certain degree of water and a certain amount of hardness in that water or it can't reproduce. Right. Or a certain grouse needs a certain amount of trees, a certain amount of seeds to eat or whatever, right? Well, one of the things you can do that in the oil and gas industry, among other industries, does this quite often, is when you have one of these environmental groups try to stop a project, you can look at that stage, that grouse area and go, you know what? It's two acres and there's three grouse that live on it. We can go to the exact same habitat that's in the state, but that's attached to either a state or national park. Uh-huh. And we can take money and grow that same habitat and make it much bigger. And it's much more valuable to the grouse or to the wildlife because now it's instead of just being a couple acres, it's millions of acres that's attached to something that will never be developed because it's a park. It's called mitigation. Uh-huh. So what you could do is you can go mitigate these operations so that the threatened species not only can grow, but can prosper in a much bigger environment. And that's something that a lot of companies that are doing infrastructure growth, they get stopped by these environmentalists, don't understand that even though the environmentalist group can't stop the process of whatever they're building because the state can't answer it quick enough, if who's ever building that project agrees to mitigate the same resources, then it's a no-brainer. So that's how they do it. They game the system, and there's ways to actually get around that. It's ridiculous. And the other problem with it is not everybody agrees on what is a threatened species, and a threatened species in one state may be abundant in other states. Right. So, and like I said, extinction is part of the national process. I don't want to see plants and animals go extinct because of man's activity, but just understand they go extinct without man's activity. Yeah, hence the dinosaurs. So, all right, Laura Sterner from Endeavor, who is a landman writes in and says, I'm in my second year of working in the industry after graduating college, and I saw you and your setup at NAEP a few weeks ago. I actually stopped by your booth and grabbed a latte, but you were busy with conversations with other people and didn't want to disturb you. Let's stop right there. So, Laura, always disturb us. If you're a listener and you see us somewhere, unless they're putting us on a stretcher and we're bleeding, come say hi, because we love talking to our listeners. Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. She says the latte was good, by the way. <laughs> my question is, I understand how... To identify property owners, the legal requirements, the documentation, and the title work required. I actually enjoy a lot of this because I have an eye for detail. Or as my boyfriend says, I'm stubborn, LOL. What I struggle with is the negotiation part with the landowner or leaseholder. Any suggestions that you could provide would be greatly appreciated. And Paige, you should do a few posts on Instagram about how to dress as a lillian man. It's harder than you think if you're a female. Please keep up the great work. I absolutely love your show. <laughs> Thanks, Laura. Right? <laughs> Negotiation. So you're not going to like this, Laura. A big part of learning how to negotiate well is experience. You just got to do it. And in the beginning, it sucks because as a human, you don't want to hurt other people's feelings. And it feels like when you tell somebody no, that you're going to disappoint them or hurt their feelings. And sometimes in negotiations, you have to say no. Now, remember this. In negotiations, there's three parts of a negotiation, right? There's the actual product element. So in this case, your mineral rights. There's the time element. So who wants to close on this and when do they want to close on this? So in a negotiation, there's actually three parts of it. There's a time element, a product element, and price element. So the time element is who wants this closed and why. The product element is actually the mineral rights. And then there's the price element. Whoever controls two of those three components in negotiation always pulls out ahead, right? And the best way to do that is to have more knowledge than the person that you're negotiating with. Also remember that the goal of a negotiation is to come to an equal 
and favorable conclusions in negotiation. A negotiation is, should never be where you try to take advantage of somebody. And unfortunately, in your business, especially years ago, there were landmen out there that took advantage of leaseholders. And a lot of people know that. And so that's why you're getting pushed back. So a couple things. You just got to negotiate. I don't know how big Endeavor is, but if you have some senior people there, go tag along with them and listen to them as they negotiate with the leaseholder and landowners. Second thing, remember that negotiation is a process. It's a skill set. It's like mathematics or English. You can learn it. I just rattle off the three parts you need to understand to do negotiation. And then remember, it's okay to walk away. Actually, it's funny. We were doing this today. I actually turned a sponsor down today. Oh, really? Somebody wanted to work with us, ready to write us a check, and they were not a good fit. And I told them no, very politely. I told them no. So sometimes in negotiation, Laura, you say no, and you don't actually close a deal. So that's just part of negotiating. Hopefully it helped. Yeah, yeah. You want to do this weekend petroleum history? Of course we're going to do this week in petroleum history. So listen to this. 1959, first LNG tanker arrives in England. Ooh. Guess where it came from? Lake Charles. How'd you know? Because I think I, I knew this. <laughs> that's pretty good. We're both from Louisiana. So. I think that's why I knew that. Uh, Forest All adapts the Yellow Dog logo. Forest All was founded in 1916. February 7th, 1817, first manufactured gas streetlight fueled by manufactured gas distilled from tar and wood. Huh. America's first public streetlight illuminated Market Street in Baltimore. February 3rd, 1998, spy ship relaunches ultra drill ship decades after secretly recovered parts of a lost Soviet ballistic missile submarine. And after a $180 million shipyard conversion, the Gloomer Explorer began his career as a record setting deep water ultra drill ship. I'm going to stop right there because it doesn't get any better than that. Right. Okay, let's pull up the rig count. The United States is at 760, down one. Canada is at 248, down two. Internationally, we're at 901, up one. All great numbers, all great numbers. Speaking of great numbers, you want to advertise with us, go to OGGN.com, hit the pricing page, it's out there. We have anything and everything, no matter what your budget is, what you're trying to accomplish, we probably can help you. Unless you're like the company I talked about earlier that wanted to do something that we don't do, and I'll tell you no. But I'll tell you no politely, and I'll still try to help you. Speaking of help, go to LinkedIn and just join the company page. It's over 50,000 members. We're putting more and more content out there. Now that we have a new head of marketing, you can see even more cool stuff up there. And then if you'd like to submit a question like you heard today, pretty easy thing to do. Go to oilandgasthisweek.com or OGGN.com. Both have places for you to submit your question. Remember, the goal is not to stump Paige and I, but to help educate our audiences. And then you heard me say this all the time. If you want the monthly oil and gas events newsletter, it's free. We put all the oil and gas events in your inbox once a month. The link is also in the show notes. And if you'd like myself or any of our experts, to come to your event, do a live podcast, let us know. We love doing that sort of stuff. And actually, this year's calendar is starting to fill up. So if you want us to do something, let us know rather quickly. Yeah, we're going to be all over the place. Literally all over the place. I know. Speaking of all over the place, you ready to get out of here? Yes. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast. A production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.